0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. We get a lot of emails from publicists and authors pitching books to us to feature on the show. I mean, a lot, a lot. <laughs> Very many. Until now, we have mostly been talking to people who are writing nonfiction. But earlier this summer, we got a note from a publicist about an author whose work has inspired three different episodes of this show. Our episodes on The Year Without a Summer and The Cato Street Conspiracy were both inspired by books in Mary Robinette Kowal's Glamorous History series. And she was also the person who suggested that we cover the first Russian Women's Battalion of Death, which made an appearance in the Six Impossible episodes, Soldiers, Snipers, and Spies episode. And now she has written a pair of books that are called The Lady Astronaut Duology, and they touch on a lot of subjects that we've covered on the show or that we know our listeners are interested in. There's the women Air Force service pilots, the early days of NASA, and the women computers who were crucial to the success of the early space program. That last one is not an episode of our show yet, but it is certainly on the list. So, since there is so much overlap between the world of our podcast and the world of Mary Robinette Kowal's writing, I was very excited to have the chance to bring her onto the show. We are going to talk about how she incorporates history into her writing, and then we are also going to talk about the real history that has inspired these new books. So, let's get to it. Hi, Mary Robinette Kowal. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am a huge fan. I am a huge fan of you. This works out really well. Yay. Um, <laughs> we we have several episodes of our show that have been inspired by your books. And so when I got a note about uh, about having you on for these new books, it seemed like a very natural fit one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is that your published novels all have historical settings. So we have The Glamorous Histories, which are Jane Austen with Magic, for listeners who maybe don't know. They're set in the Regency. There's Ghost Talkers, which is set in Europe during World War I. And then there are these new books, The Calculating Stars, which is out now, and The Faded Sky, which is coming out just after this episode of our podcast does. And that's set in an alternate space race starting in 1952. Has your research process been consistent among all of these novels, or is the setting that you're researching influencing the research that you have to do? Uh,
0: It's a little bit of a mix. Um, My research process has evolved as I've learned kind of more about my writing process. So what I did initially was that I would research very, well, actually, no, with with the very first novel, I'm just like, I love Jane Austen. And then uh, there were a lot of mistakes. Uh, but after that, what I would do is I would research the period very, very heavily. Uh, and then I would write. And And what I discovered was that I would wind up with a lot of information that I wasn't going to use. So what I do now is, um, and and have for several books, is a layered approach, which is I do kind of some broad research to get a sense of the era that I'm looking at. But generally, I'm picking an era because I've already come across something that has interested me. And then that kind of begins to shape the story. And as I work on the outline, I narrow down and hone my research so that it's more specific to what I'm actually doing. The other thing that I would say that has changed about my research process is that uh, I now assume that women and people of color... Uh, and non-binary people are there in history and have just been left out. So I go specifically looking for them.
1: And you find them. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: because they're everywhere.
1: It's like <laughs> Because it, they really were there. Right. It's
0: like this is not a not a 21st century invention. Um, you know, uh people of color like it, it, you know, there were there were black Roman legionaries in in, in Scotland. <laughs> I mean that people people have been around a long time of, of all types it's it's not like we're we're you know inventing things
1: it's not like women suddenly appeared in nineteen fifty four
0: no no there was a there was a review which I was delighted to get but uh because it was in a national paper but it said uh something like if if NASA had had a heroine with an attitude and I'm like NASA did actually they had quite a number of them um that you just uh have maybe consumed a lot of the mass media that presents astronauts and nasa as being, you know, all white and with chiseled jaws. But I I mean, Sally Ride, she kind of she was kind of with NASA.
1: <laughs> I love Sally Ride. I think one day we might have a podcast about her. We don't yet. Uh so you mentioned that uh when you when you started out just by writing you love Jane Austen. You wrote a book that was Jane Austen with magic and then there were mistakes in it. Can you can you tell me what any of the mistakes were?
0: Oh, there's so many um so uh, like some of them are very simple on a language level uh, for instance, I have the um uh I shall go out and check on the strawberries, and the problem is that check at the time just meant stop, so I will go out and stop on the strawberries. It's like oh, that's <laughs> not um so some of them are simple things like that, but other things are uh dinner parties. I thought that the pairing up of couples and processing into dinner parties was uh, just how it was had always been done uh, and it turns out in the Regency that's not at all the way things happen um, first the ladies line up in order of precedence and they go in and they sit where they want to based on you know their choice because they're the first one in the room and then the gentlemen line up in order of precedence and they go in and sit down next to who they want to so it's you know, it's important to understand that that at times when you're like, oh, and so-and-so was sitting next to, that, that part of the reason that was a big deal was because the man had chosen to sit there. Um, or sometimes he had been forced to because someone else had gotten into the room earlier.
1: Wow. I didn't know that at all. Right? Something you said a moment ago brings me to my next question, which is, I know that now you're doing a lot to make sure the language that you're using and the language that your characters are speaking is not anachronistic. Uh, What are you doing to make sure that there aren't a lot of anachronisms in the language of these books?
0: So with the Jane Austen books, it was uh, really simple. Um, And I say that in the process that I'm about to describe will sound anything but simple. Um, I created a Jane Austen spellcheck dictionary so basically, I took the complete works of Jane Austen, created, it, ran it through a concordance engine, which gave me just a list of words that she used, and uh, used that as my spell check dictionary. So it flagged any word that Jane Austen did did not use, which allowed me to look it up and then see uh, whether or not it existed or if the uh, the usage had shifted. Um, it didn't save me from words that she did use and the usage had shifted, but it, it caught a lot. I did a similar thing with Ghost Talkers, but it was a little bit harder because a lot of the language that I was using in Ghost Talkers was so, uh, because it was uh, dealing with spiritualism uh, and war. So coming up with representative texts that covered that stuff was a little bit harder. So coming up with the the texts to serve as uh, as my basis was was trickier and i did not actually try to do this for um for calculating stars what i did for that was i just paid attention to idioms and uh jargon uh looking for things that had shifted um and then also for regionalisms one of the conversations that my my editor and i had um with calculating stars was about the use of uh, the the phrase "Oh Lord" or "Lord knows." So my main character is Southern, and this is a very common phrase. Uh, but she's also Jewish, and so the question was, my, and my editor is Jewish. I am not, and so she flagged that. She's like, "This is this is a very Christian phrase." I'm like, "I I feel like I have heard my Southern Jewish friends say this, but I'm not certain." Uh, so I went and uh, checked, and uh, I stopped on it. And it turns out that it was pretty, uh, basically in my highly scientific survey of Twitter, that it was pretty evenly split. And the distinction seemed to have been kind of how long people had been in the South. So it was a, an assimilation thing. Uh, ultimately, I wound up pulling it out because I knew that there were going to be enough people for whom that would feel wrong That even if it was correct for Elma's character, because her people had been there since the 1700s, it would still feel wrong to a lot of people. And so I went ahead and pulled it out. There's one or two that I missed, but for the most part, I replaced it with God Knows.
1: You also do audiobook narration, including the audiobook narration for some of your own books. Does working within a historical setting affect how you work as an audiobook narrator?
0: Yes. Um, A lot of it... Well, I, I will say that any text affects how I approach something as an audiobook narrator. Uh, but the way in which people speak shifts. So, uh, in Ghost Talkers, um, Ginger has a mid-Atlantic accent, which a lot of people will flag uh, in reviews as "oh, it's a terrible British accent that she's doing for Ginger." Or why does Ginger have something of a British accent? Like she she doesn't. It's mid-Atlantic. That's it's fine. Um, but also just uh, the approach to narration. Uh, when I was narrating somebody else's book, uh, *The House of Hawthorne*, which was looking at, at Hawthorne himself and and his wife and family, the the prose is different. So the way that, that the rhythms with which you approach it are going to be very different than say when I'm narrating uh, *October Day* for Sean and McGuire. It's it's just it's baked into the prose. Uh, And so that affects the way I I narrate.
1: The last sort of general question that I have for you about working in this intersection of fiction and history is when you've been working on these books, is there anything that you have been surprised to learn was an anachronism or uh, the other way around, uh, if that works better, is surprised that something wasn't an anachronism that you thought would be?
0: Uh, So one of the words that I cannot use, even though it is completely historically accurate in all of my Jane Austen things, uh, is electricity. Jane Austen uh, used electricity and electric a couple of times, uh, but it totally sounds like an anachronism. So I can't use that. And that was surprising, actually, that it didn't flag. Um, and, and hitting it in her text. Uh, one of the things, like all of the things that that catch me off guard, uh, are, are really small things, like uh, switchback, uh, going up the switchback on on a uh, on the side of a hill. Um, that's a railroad term and so i can't use that before there are railroads uh other things that are not anachronisms but again feel like it um or or uh that were surprising uh barnstorming which i had always thought was a flying term is actually turns out to be a theater term that predates the civil war and it was touring companies would storm into towns set up in a barn and then storm out again
1: i also always thought that was uh, an uh an aircraft term, like I imagine that being more about air shows.
0: Yeah, winging it also is a theater term, uh, and and what that one and that was another one that was like really, uh, because I also <laughs> thought that that was an air term, uh, and what it meant was that when you were doing shows in rep and very very fast, you would tape your lines of theater, your, your lines of text, if you had a long speech to a piece of scenery. But you're rehearsing on the set of the previous show. And so sometimes you walk out on stage and it turns out that the piece of furniture you had relied on being there was in the wings. So you had to wing it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, when, when you said it was a theater term, I immediately thought, okay, I think it has something to do with being in the wings. But the furniture part is totally new to me.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, there's a really fantastic <laughs> book that you would love. Uh it's out of print, uh but it's called The Stage Reminiscences of Mrs. Gilbert and she was a uh an actor who had a I think 60-year career that began before the Civil War uh and went on uh into the early 1900s and um like she acted with John Wilkes Booth and and talks about that. But it's fascinating learning how theater has changed over the years. What I have generally found also, I will say, is that the places that I am most caught off guard are the things that I think I know. Uh, So I I double check all of the theater stuff very, very closely now. Um, I double check all of my astronaut uh, stuff, all of my space stuff, very closely because there's a lot of things that we think are common language uh, that are not anymore, that were stuff that was used either early in the program and has shifted, or uh, is stuff that is used now and didn't exist in the early program.
1: Mary and I are going to talk about her new books in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. this next part of the interview, Tracy and Mary are going to talk about the early days of the space program in the United States, along with the 99s, which is an international organization of women pilots and the first lady astronaut trainees, which was a real program that started out as a way to evaluate women's fitness to be astronauts in the 1960s. So let's move on to the books about the space program. Tell us about your lady astronaut duology.
0: Sure. So this is basically me kind of reimagining Ray Bradbury's sort of space adventures, uh, but women-centered. So it's, it's set in that early, early space program. Um, and in, in my case, it's in 1952, so before there was a space program, really. Uh, but I drop an asteroid on the planet, uh, which kicks off a space program fast and hard and with an imperative to get off the planet, which means colonization, which means that women have to be involved. And it's also during the middle of the civil rights era. So uh, things progress a little differently, um, a little more inclusively in in my ...version of history than they do in the real world.
1: So at the very start of the book, I think almost on the first page, there's a reference to President Dewey. So obviously that's Thomas Dewey, nowadays most famous for having been the subject of the Chicago Daily Tribune's wrong headline of Dewey Defeats Truman... When I first read The Calculating Stars, I sort of interpreted this as a nod to readers, just saying, heads up, this is a very different universe that we're looking at. But your historical note at the end of the book makes reference to the fact that you needed to get the space race on a faster timeline than it really happened in our world. So can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. So there's
0: two things to know uh, about this. One has to do with... Uh, past Mary making decisions uh, that present Mary has to live with. And that is that the Lady Astronaut of Mars, which is the novella or novelette that kicked this off, was set in an existing story universe that I had written, um, which was based in a, uh, the, the first story in this is called uh We interrupt this broadcast, which contains information that none of the characters in this universe will ever know. So you don't have to read it. But that story depended on punch cards and also on a a programming error surrounding Leap Day and a, a near pass asteroid strike. And that led me to 1952. And the problem is, we have no satellites in 1952. So I went looking for, well, why and how would we do that? And uh, that led me to having Dewey come into office instead. So the thing about Dewey is that he, uh, as opposed to Truman, is that Dewey was um, very much an internationalist. Um he was very interested in collaboration, and he was also really against uh, corruption and uh, and very into efficiency. And the being very into efficiency is is the the key twist here. So after World War II, what happened was that uh, Werner von Braun, who had been the head of the, the Nazi um, rocketry program, was brought back to the United States with a bunch of his rocket scientists. And they just cooled their heels. They were just not being used at all. And a lot of this was because, hello, former Nazis. Uh, well, you know, I mean, technically Nazis. Um, So that that had a lot to do with why they were cooling their heels. There was a lot of effort to get a rocket up at this point, and no one was letting Von Braun and his people do it. Uh, And everyone was trying to avoid the V-2 for launches because because of its uh, military history. My reasoning And this is the kind of reasoning that one does when one is writing a short story, which is that it was not very well researched, but I I think it holds. My reasoning is that Dewey would have probably said, you know what, this is more efficient. Let's just let this guy and his team use technology that we know how it works instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. And then they can go on. And, And so I think that it's plausible that, that we could have gotten, I know that we could have actually gotten rockets, like with the technology that we had available, I am certain that we could have gotten rockets uh, and satellites off the ground faster than we did. Uh, I think that having Dewey in office might have made that happen. I don't know for certain, but that that was the chain of reasoning that got me there.
1: So, the Women Air Force Service Pilots and the Women Computers from the Early Space Program are both just a huge part of these books. So, where did you first learn about these women, and what made you decide to write a book about them?
0: So, again, I mostly assumed that they would be there, but, um, but more specifically, the reason that I knew about the Women Computers was because of my dad. My dad is a programmer. Um, and he started programming before computer science was a term. Uh, and he started with punch cards. and he would talk about uh, the punch card girls, uh, which is apparently the term for them at the time, uh, the punch card girls and uh, the 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 women computers and and so he, it was just something that I was kind of peripherally aware of. And when I started looking at, Um, Who would go into space? Because I wanted to write, you know, this lady astronaut story about this older astronaut, older woman astronaut in an era of punch cards. I had to think about, well, what, what qualifications would she have? Because you would have to be extraordinary in order to be able to get up there. And what would... What would the world look like? But specifically, what qualifications would you have? And that led me to realizing, in, in order to get her up there in a punch card era, that she would have to have already been a pilot, um, and that she would also have to have been very good in the sciences, and then um, mathematics was a natural thing, because that was where women were kind of dominating. When I started researching for the book, the first thing that I hit uh, that was really uh, very, very useful was the Rise of the Rocket Girls by Natalia Holt, which focuses on the women's uh, the the early role of women in the space program, um, and a lot of it is is pre NASA. Uh, most of it's focused on the women of JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but it uh, it's pretty comprehensive in in how involved they were. So with that, that kind of gave me the the line into the computers. Um, and then also, again, I started looking for, you know, what, when did women start into the space program? And I, I was, again, aware of WASPs kind of peripherally because of just sort of some of the stuff that I had learned when I was working on Ghost Talkers, when I had been looking at pilots, um, even though that's world war 1 the the research had made me aware of the wasps while i was working on it but uh but when i started specifically looking at this i discovered the mercury 13 which were a group of women many of whom had been wasps who were put through the early astronaut uh the mercury training or mercury testing but not actually entered into the program so that that was kind of the roundabout way that i i found my way into to learning about these folks.
1: Well, and I had the first lady astronaut tra- trainees also on my list of things to talk to you about. So, obviously, I don't I w- don't want to give away too much of the plot of your book, but obviously since it's called a lady astronaut <laughs> book, there are lady astronauts and as you might imagine with women in the 1950s, some of the things that they're made to do as astronaut trainees are kind of degrading. But this was something that also happened to the first lady astronaut trainees in our world, right?
0: Yeah, so a lot of the things that I have the lady astronauts go through are things that happened in the real world. The incident with the uh Dilbert Dunker and the bikinis is something that I completely fabricated. However, there are enough incidences that are parallel to that uh, that I am absolutely certain that that's pretty much how it would have gone down the the things that I did not make up were things like uh, calling them all astronauts um focusing on uh, their beauty and attractiveness and and listing their measurements in newspaper articles yeah
1: so what ultimately happens to these first lady astronaut trainees
0: so this is a this is a really complicated and and an ultimately tragic story. Most of them were fine. Like, they would really have enjoyed doing this, but, um, but went on with their lives. There were two, um, Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb, who were very much a team when kind of everything began. So Jackie Cochran established the 99s. Um, or, well, she was influential in establishing the 99s. And, and, but she established the Wasps. And she was like, had won all kinds of awards, set multiple records uh, as a pilot, as a woman pilot. She was she was very very good and very driven and very ambitious. Jerry Cobb was also a really phenomenal pilot, but uh, not so good at public speaking. Um, she was literally tongue-tied. Her her tongue had. Um, had a connection that had to be severed surgically so that she could speak. So she was always very shy. But the idea of going into space captivated her. And when she was brought in to do these these tests, she started obsessing about it. So what happens is that the women are doing the tests. Um, There comes a test at which they have to be sent to a NASA facility, and Jerry Cobb had been sent to do it and they wanted to send the rest of the women and someone asked for permission and it at this point begins to get shut down there's a, a a draft of a letter that Lyndon Johnson never sent that said let's shut this down and he never sent it he said instead let's let nasa make those decisions but it's very clear from all of the surrounding communication that he had expressed his displeasure and the let's let NASA decide, was you guys are going to decide, but you know what answer I want. So then there was a protest, they go to Congress, they ultimately get a hearing. And in this hearing, Jackie Cochran, who had been pushing for women to go into space, completely undercuts the program by saying, yeah, NASA shouldn't invest in this because the nation will spend all of this money training these women who are just going to leave and go get married." Wow. Right? And this was an argument that she had faced, and this is what makes it so astonishing. This is an argument that she had faced when she was trying to establish the WASPs, that people said, there's no point in doing this because if you do, these women are just going to go and leave and get married. And she had argued that that was not fair and prejudicial and... Uh, and that married men continued doing their jobs and that married women should be allowed to as well. So for her to turn around and, and use that same argument to undercut the program, and basically what it came down to was that she wanted to be in charge and didn't like the way Jerry was kind of getting out of control. And and Jackie Cochran also had very specific ideas about propriety and image and she felt like the the current crop was particularly with Jerry Cobb's involvement, were beginning to be ridiculed, and that if they shut it down and then came back later, that with her in charge that that things would be different. but it it basically just ended the program any in any chance of women being injured in the program at that time. And, and she was not the only voice saying things like that, but there were there were other people who were involved. And at this point, NASA introduced the requirement uh, right in this era uh, area that that in order to be an astronaut, you had to have been a test pilot. Now, what's interesting about this is that at the same time and during the hearings, when they were talking to John Glynn about requirements, um the women were saying, you know, the, the rules have been such that we can't have been test pilots, so we should look at equivalent experience, because most of these women, or many of them, had like four times the flight time as any of the existing astronauts. And one of the arguments that they put forth was that, you know, John Glynn would not have qualified with the current or with the existing uh, astronaut uh, requirements because he didn't have an advanced degree when he applied. He didn't have an advanced degree when he went into space, but that had become a requirement. And so they said, you know, if you could relax it and look at equivalent experience for him, why are you not able to do that for women? And uh, Glenn's response was, no, I I would not have qualified initially. Um, And if if we can find any women who are as qualified as the men, you know, the brave men who are going into space, uh, then I would welcome them with open arms. But you're not going to find them. Which, again, kind of shut things down. <laughs> and, and, and then he also said, I'd like to have that stricken from the record because I have to go home and talk to my wife tonight.
1: <laughs> oh. So he knew. Yeah. Ah. Well, that was a bit of an infuriating note to pause on. When we come back from the break, we're going to continue on with that theme for just a bit with a discussion of the racial segregation of the women's Air Force service pilots during World War II like we talked about earlier in in these books the women air force service pilots are a huge part of the books and something that comes up that has come up when we've talked about the wasp on this podcast before is that almost all of the wasp were white Mm -hmm. and one of the actual historical stories that comes up in these novels, is that the only Black woman who applied was asked to withdraw her application because of her race. And that's something that comes up in your book. So can you talk about that a little as well?
0: So that was something that I had run across when I was reading about the history of the WASPs. Um, And again, knowing that people of color, and specifically women of color, uh, get just completely erased from history, I very deliberately went looking for them. There was uh, one um, Native American pilot, two Chinese pilots, and uh, and then, as you mentioned, the uh, the woman who applied and then wasn't allowed. It was asked to withdraw her application. Jackie Cochran was the one who asked her to withdraw the application because she felt that with and and this is horrifying, uh, but she felt that with the uh, segregation issues in the United States, and that if they had a black pilot that it would call the entire operation into program. Now that was the, um, that was the rationale she used. But if you look at, at a lot of the other things that she said and, and she was actually just bigoted. Um, and and it was just straight up racism, uh, couched in the uh, but it's the best for the program. You found the name of the pilot, which I had gone looking for and had not been able to find. Uh, so that was super exciting. Mildred Hemonds
1: Carter. Yeah. Her husband was a Tuskegee airman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, when I I was so after you sent that to me, I went looking and was like reading about her. And the fact that they would they would fly, they would be flying and they would do I love you messages while in flight over fields. I was just like, that is the Sweetest, most romantic thing I think I've ever read.
1: Yeah, that's um, I. Uh, I think had you written this book a couple of years later, it might have been easier to find her name because it's been in the like the much more recent past that she has been recognized as the the woman who applied to be a WASP. Um, but yeah, she was a pilot. Her husband was a pilot and was a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, I think he is still living, or was as of a couple of years ago. And they, it seems like they have just together such a beautiful, sweet love story. Um, and I, I I don't think there's a qu- quite enough public information about her at this point to do a whole podcast on her. But uh, the fact that she has s- sort of a little nod <laughs> uh, in the book, uh, and I, I don't think... Uh, we've done a two-part podcast on the Wasp on this show before. We interviewed... Uh, Dr. Catherine Sharplandek, who has done a lot of research on them, and we talked about the fact that the wasps were all segregated. But I don't think it came up that there had been an applicant who was asked to withdraw her application.
0: Yeah, it is definitely worth uh, reading more about that and and that and and the other women uh, in the wasps. And and I'll also say that, that reading um, about the early uh, African-Americans in aviations and in space history is, is really interesting. The Because I couldn't find um, Mildred Hinman's Carter's name, I made up a character to be that person. And based uh, at her surname in the book is uh, Coleman, which is a nod to Bessie Coleman. Um, do you know about Bessie Coleman?
1: I do know about Bessie Coleman. We have a podcast about her in the archive.
0: Excellent. Everyone should go read all about Bessie Coleman. Because, but in short form for, or listen all about Bessie Coleman. But in short form for for people who are listening right now, uh, she was like, I would like to be a pilot. And everyone in the United States said, you can't because you're black and you're a woman. And so she said, I will go to France where they will teach me to be a pilot. And I will teach myself French so that I can go do this thing. Which is what she did, which <laughs> is so uh, kick-ass that I just, I love her so much. Had she been of the right age and still alive, I totally would have had her be an astronaut.
1: Yeah, she has some, uh, some parallels to the story of Eugene Bullard, who is on the list for an episode of this show at some point, and who also has a character named after him in your novel. Yes, indeed. Thank you for catching that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my last question, my my last thing that surprised me to learn it was a real thing when I was reading these books, again, without giving away too much plot, uh, there is a prescription anti-anxiety drug that plays a part in these books. It's called Milltown. Yes. And I thought that it was just a, a, a thing that you had created for these books until my spouse, who is a librarian, did what librarians do and looked into it, and I learned that this was, uh, this was a real anti-anxiety medication, and it was as much of a household name in the '50s as Prozac is has been in more recent years. So, can you talk about that? Yeah.
0: So Milltown uh, was really kind of the first uh, widely prescribed um, anxiety drug. And uh, it it was so popular that, like, Milton Burl joked about changing his name to Milltown Burl. And one of the things that I have in the books is saying that, you know, you you saw the advertisements for Milltown everywhere, including one that said, we have ice cream and Milltown. And that was like an actual ad at a real drugstore. You can find those images. Um, It was just, it was everywhere. And... It was called Mother's Little Helper. Um, this was called the uh, the Age of Anxiety, is what sometimes people called the era, which I refer to in the books, uh, and that was already in existence. So Milltown kind of, one of the things that was interesting about it is that it was the first time, as I said, that, that there was a widely prescribed drug. And it was also the first time that anxiety was sort of treated like, um, oh, you have a cold. You have anxiety. Here, take this medication. So, Miltown was not so much an anti-anxiety medication as it was a tranquilizer. And what kind of happened to it over the the, the course of history is that uh, because it was so successful and popular, a lot of other people began trying to create their own drugs and and take it over uh, and take over the marketplace. And they they did things with. Things that were actually more effective at treating anxiety and and actually looking at anxiety, but by 1956, like one in twenty Americans had tried Miltown. It was just seen as completely innocuous and totally harmless. And again, it was the first time that that we had kind of said, you know, it's okay to treat this. The the flip side of this is that because it was so popular, and because people started using it recreationally, and because it was addictive, that's when we started to get the pushback that happened later. Of oh no, you don't want to take any medication for your illnesses, for your for your mental health, because because it's going to mess you up. It'll make you a different person, uh, and so that's there's this this unfortunate pushback that comes later. Uh, But at the time of the book, Milltown was the thing, and it was, and it it did help people who had anxiety. But it was also something that was very easy to be misused.
1: So how did you go about researching how this 1950s-era drug was prescribed and what it was like to be on it? Uh, Fortunately, there's a
0: really good book that's Basically, just looking at that, um, I ride on the coattails of other people's research. Uh, so the first thing that I found was a—it uh, was actually a CBC Radio pro, uh, thing on Milltown. Uh, Milltown, a game-changing drug you've probably never heard of, uh, which is is a great half-hour episode that's just looking at Milltown. So in addition to the CBC program, there's also this fantastic book called The Age of Anxiety, A History of America's Turbulent Affair with Tranquilizers by Andrea Tone. And it looks at the the search for the best ones. Uh, It looks at the rise of the America's prescription drug culture. Um, It looks at, you know, our really complicated relationship with tranquilizers and, and the fact that it became this billion dollar industry um and and actually milltown was also an accidental discovery the guy was looking for a, a, another form of penicillin
1: oh <laughs> that's not the same thing at all
0: no no it was really one of those whoops um yeah uh and and also you know uh someone else who had fled the nazis um so he was, uh, he was looking, actually, I guess he was looking for a way to, to preserve penicillin. Um, and then he stumbled on this chemical, which was a relaxant uh, that eventually led to the drug Miltown. Um, but he had, he had wanted the drug to be classified as a sedative, but uh, someone had said, um, what was his name? Uh, his name was Berger, um, Frank Berger. Uh, so he had wanted it to be classified as a sedative, but a friend convinced him that there were so many sedatives on the market and that what the world really wanted was tranquility. So he advertised it as a tranquilizer.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. It's also very, it's very different from how I imagine uh, tranquilizers in the 1950s working. Like, I, it, it seems like in sort of sitcom depictions from later on, Tranquilizers are things that leave you on the couch immobile. (laughs) Uh, But that's not what happens at all with uh, the characters in your book uh, or regular people going about their days uh, on whatever prescription is needed for their their mental health uh, functionality.
0: Yeah, And, and really, it was... Like it was so widely embraced. Uh, apparently, in Hollywood, at some of the the, the big celebrity parties, uh, Miltown would be passed around the way you would pass around peanuts. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and there were there were also Miltinis, which were martinis uh, inspired by not just inspired by actually, but actually combining alcohol and Milltown, which sounds like a really
1: terrible idea. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good plan at all. No, no. That's fascinating. So uh, is there anything else that you want to make sure that listeners either know about your books or know about this world that the books have been set in? Or even the real world analogs to the world that, it's, that they're set in?
0: I would say that one thing when you're reading the book is that I start every chapter with a headline uh, and a short news article. And the vast majority of those news articles are completely real. I say completely real. Um, I have tweaked them to be appropriate for the timeline, but the vast majority of them are actually from that era. So when I'm talking about riots, those were actually riots that were occurring in the real world. When I'm talking about uh, women's involvement, those were articles from the real world, but they are, they just get left out, and I guess that's the the thing, the the big kind of takeaway that I would want people to to take from this is that so many people just get left out, which is you know the kind of the point of your entire podcast. But just a <laughs> reminder, uh, especially for people who are writers, to to go looking um, and to not uh, not get stuck in in regurgitating what media has given you, because that just reinforces stuff that's wrong.
1: Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Mary.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Uh, I I really enjoy your books, and I think a lot of our listeners, if they are not already familiar, will as well. Yay! (laughs) Thank you again to Mary Robinette Kowal for being on the show today. Her new books are The Calculating Stars and The Faded Sky, The Calculating Stars is already out, and The Faded Sky is coming out on August 21st, 2018, which is just after this episode of our show will publish. These are both prequels to her earlier novelette called The Lady Astronaut of Mars, which won the 2014 Hugo Award for Best Novelette. Do you have a little listener mail for us, Tracy? I do. It is from Elizabeth, and it is about Ida B. Wells. Elizabeth says, I'm a little behind in my podcast, but was listening to your podcast on Ida B. Wells today. And just yesterday, she was highlighted in the news here in Chicagoland. There's a movement to build a monument here in Chicago to be placed in Bronzeville, where she lived. As so many women don't have monuments dedicated to them, she should be so honored. She has a link to an article and then says, a quote stood out to me that I thought the podcast would find interesting. Quote, throughout the country, there are hundreds of monuments to the Confederacy. There are fewer than 20 monuments to Black women, said Duster, a writer and lecturer at Columbia College in Chicago. She hopes that this will be the start of a movement toward better representation. That's the end of the quote. Uh, Elizabeth goes on to say, this movement is crowdfunded. Although the article says they have the funds, the website says they do not. Perhaps you can read this on the podcast and get more people to contribute. The URL for idabwellsmonument.org. Based on everything I can find out about this project, the primary funding for the initial statue is complete but they're currently working on a round two which will involve uh, some other smaller pieces of artwork near the main monument that has been funded so thank you so much elizabeth we got several tweets and emails and facebook comments about this uh, over the last couple of weeks so thank you if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com We are also on Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter, all as Mist in History. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com and find a searchable archive of all the episodes that we have done on the show and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done together. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts.